Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week we're happy to premiere a new series of podcasts on the show in conjunction with Oxford University Press, the National... Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week we're happy to premiere a new series of podcasts on the show. In conjunction with Oxford University Press, the National History Center has initiated a series of books called Interpreting History. Uh, The volumes in this series aim to convey to readers how and why historians revise and reinterpret their understandings of the past, and they do so by focusing on a particular historical topic or event or idea. Today, in conjunction with the National History Center, New Books in History would like to offer you uh, this interview with the editors of Atlantic History, a critical appraisal, those editors being Jack Green and Philip Morgan. You may think that historians normally study a nation or a state like France or China, but they also study areas of the world, areas of international or imperial interaction. There are many famous examples of this sort of international history, the best known perhaps being the Mediterranean and the Mediterranean world in the age of Philip II, which was issued long ago by Fernand Brodel. But there have been many contributions since then, and many of them to the history of the Atlantic world. Well, today in this discussion, Professors Green and Morgan will talk to us about the genesis of the field of Atlantic history, exactly what it covers in terms of when and where, and what the prospects of international history are. And I'd like to thank the National History Center for arranging this interview for New Books in History, and I'd like to welcome them to the New Books in History team. I'd also like to encourage people to go to the National History Center website. It's linked on the New Books in History website to see what they have on offer. So without further ado, here is our interview with Jack Green and Philip Morgan. Hi, Jack, and hi, Philip. Hi, how are you? I'm very well. Hi, Marshall. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. I should tell our listeners that we have Jack Green and Philip Morgan on the show today. And as I said in the preamble to this podcast, this is the first in a series of podcasts that we'll be doing regarding um, books that have been sponsored by Oxford University Press and the National History Center, uh, Rethinking Fundamental Historical Topics. And the fundamental historical topic that we'll be rethinking with you today and with um, Professors Green and Morgan is the idea of the Atlantic world or Atlantic history. They have uh, edited a new book that, as I say, has come out from Oxford University Press, and it's called Atlantic History, a Critical Reappraisal, and they have gotten all of the lights of this field, and bright lights they are, to submit essays about it. I, I found the book fascinating because it's always interesting for me at least to see historians disagree um, as uh, professors Green and Morgan will probably tell you and I, I believe is the case uh, history is a very um, it, it's, it's a very solitary endeavor really we usually sit in our offices or in some archives and think to ourselves and when you think to yourself for too long you usually convince yourself of something that's probably wrong so it, it helps to talk to people and this book is a terrific conversation about a field which these two gentlemen uh, helped to found or just straight out founded um, at Johns Hopkins. So it's my great pleasure to have them on today. Jack and Philip, let me ask you to begin, as we customarily do on New Books in History, by saying a few words about, about yourself. Jack, why don't you start? Uh, yes, well, I uh, taught at uh, Johns Hopkins for almost 40 years, uh, and uh, uh, from 1966 until uh, my retirement in 2005. 
Uh, I got into history rather accidentally, but began immediately uh, working on uh, problems that had a transatlantic uh, dimension uh, and uh, uh, have continued in that vein uh, really ever ever since. Uh, my initial work was on uh, representative government uh, and its transmission to the to the new uh, world, uh, and uh, uh, I moved on from that to a variety of other topics over the last 40 years. But uh, when I um, uh, was when we were looking around at Johns Hopkins in the late uh, 1960s. Uh, for a way to persuade the administration to get some African and Latin American history uh, into the curriculum. Uh, we hit upon this device of Atlantic history as a way of focusing on the four, uh, the history of the four uh, continents. Uh, our history department was so small that we didn't think at that time we could do any uh, Asian uh, history, for instance. Uh, and uh, the idea took off from there, and we got a big uh, grant from the Rockefeller Foundation to help establish an anthropology department, which was uh, composed of uh, several uh, people who were historical anthropologists in the uh, in the beginning, at least, and who contributed enormously to the success of this uh, program. Um, and uh, it ran for about 20 years until the historians got tired of running it uh, and uh, turned it over to the anthropologists who immediately changed the name to Global, uh, not the Atlantic History uh, Program in, in, in History and Culture, but the Center for uh, Global Studies in Power, uh, History, and something else I can't, I can't remember. Uh, but uh, I've continued to be active in this uh, field. I uh, very early on developed some doubts about the explanatory utility of the concept of uh, Atlantic history because all the processes uh, our group was trying to study seemed to uh, reach out into other corners of the world. Uh, and not to be uh, confined to the Atlantic. And the spillover uh, uh, was one of the reasons I didn't object strongly when the anthropologists wanted to change the uh, term to uh, global. Uh, but nonetheless, saying that, I think the concept has uh, a lot of utility in uh, organizing into a coherent uh, unit uh, the way that uh, 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 people, especially early modernists, uh, can look at a at a uh, at the expansion of Europe and the reception uh, of uh, and the resistance to uh, to uh, European influence uh, elsewhere in the world. Uh, Philip, maybe you could tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure, happy to, Marshall. Yes, um, I I got into early American history from Britain, so I get a particular perspective on things. I got interested in slavery and the plantation world, and uh, you can't study that, I think, without uh, taking a fairly large uh, uh, framework. Um, so uh, that, that was my, uh, that, that's my particular interest, and um, I've, always, I've always thought about early American history as, as being best considered in a larger framework, in terms of a transnational framework. And... Um, uh, my sense of, of Atlantic history is that, um, as Jack says, um, it can be. It can be. Uh, you should never think of it as being self-contained, and um, it can be. It can be a confining uh, unit in, in in some respects. But on the other hand, um, thinking Atlantically does uh, broaden horizons. I think it does does encourage people to avoid uh, parochialism um, and. Uh, and should encourage people to avoid the teleology too, uh, thinking purely in national in national uh, terms. Um, and so uh, it has certain certain advantages, I think. And I would think actually, in terms of explanatory power, um, you know, it, it is actually useful to think in, in an Atlantic sense. Um, it's uh, it's not a coherent entity, but if you think about What's happening in one place, how it might uh, have repercussions from you know, from from uh, from other places, that would be uh, that's one way of uh, that's one way in which it, it's helpful. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the things that uh, I found fascinating, and actually uh, Jack just mentioned it, is that uh, 
a good part of the story of the origins of uh, the notion of the Atlantic world and Atlantic history are uh, institutional. And, and I think that this is a part of the historical discipline that lay people never see. You know, for example, they see Africanists in history departments today and they think they've always been there. And we have a terrific uh, African program here at Iowa, um, but I can remember the day in which uh, it was the note, you, you would have people that studied Africa, but they would all be in anthropology departments. <laughs> Again, we, we think about that now as incredible, but it's, it's really true. They, they were. Uh, Jack, maybe you could say a few words about those early moments when you were attempting to convince the administration at a very enlightened place like uh, Johns Hopkins in this case to, to actually hire people that didn't do, I guess, um, you know, colonial America and, uh, and revolutionary France. Well, actually, even colonial America was a bit of a stretch for them. <laughs> uh, but uh, uh, when I arrived at Johns Hopkins in the middle 1960s, there was a, there's a seminar room for the history department which had a map on it uh, of what was important. <laughs> and uh, it was essentially a map that went from Rome to London, uh, almost took in Berlin, uh, but it was centered on France and the, right. and the Channel, and it didn't take in the Iberian world either. And I uh, was there looking at that map thinking, my God, you know, what a Eurocentric place this is. And as I looked around the campus, though, it was equally Eurocentric. Uh, all the literature departments uh, concentrated on those Western literatures and the philosophy department the same. I mean, it was so uh, so this was this was quite a sell in a way. Uh, but um, uh, on the other hand, it would just luckily we had two very intelligent uh, deans, something you don't always find. Uh, and I can't say that Hopkins has always had them during my long tenure there, but, but these were people who were quite receptive to new approaches and could see, uh, uh, immediately, you know, the, the, um, uh, argument, the, the, the pedagogical arguments in favor, uh, of, uh, broadening the curriculum, uh, and to have an appeal. And of course, this was also right during the middle of the civil rights movement, and I think some of the, administrators and some people on the campus saw this as a way of heading off uh, uh, having a strong African-American history program of some kind for which there was considerable amount of pressure mm -hmm. and we could deal deal with the uh, with the themes of African-American history uh, within this framework uh, without having uh, to add a whole lot of new bodies and a new department and and so on. So these are the kinds of practical considerations out of which ideas like Atlantic history uh, emerge. Uh, and and I I agree with you. They 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 are quite they are quite interesting. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, one of the things this reminded me of was uh, about I guess it was roughly it must have been eight or nine years ago. Um, I was teaching at a large university on the East Coast, let's just say that. And uh, uh, you guys may remember that the Soviet Union had fallen, and many Russian historians, of which I was one, were worrying about uh, whether their jobs were secure or not. So we were thinking about how we could interest people in um, our own fields. And uh, one of the things that we cooked up was the idea of Eurasian history, a Eurasian world. And I remember I held a big NEH conference uh, that brought together many scholars to talk about a Eurasian sphere. But I have to say, I wasn't completely cynical about it. There is a Eurasian sphere. There was a Silk Road. There was lots of interaction mm. and so on and so forth. But on the other hand, I also wanted to save this very valuable thing that had been created during the Cold War. I'm not sure I was successful or we were successful in doing it. But I, I think it's an interesting moment in historiography that, again, the lay public doesn't see at all. I mean, they just simply think that these things are there. And actually, we have to fight with fight is probably the wrong word, uh, we have to negotiate with administrators about the lines that were given and about what will be studied and won't be studied. And so really we have to not only pitch to our audience, that is people who are listening to this podcast, but we also have to pitch to these uh, people that actually hold the purse strings of our departments. Um, uh, Philip, maybe you could uh, say a few words about the institutionalization of Atlantic history. Well, I mean, it, it's um, th there are Atlantic history programs and uh, um, gra graduate programs uh, across the United States and across the world now. So there are universities that offer 
that offer degrees in Atlantic history and uh, and programs and orientations in it. Yeah, I mean, in terms of African historians, one thing I I I, I would uh, suggest is that um, I mean, I think among African historians, some of them resist the idea of Atlantic history. They think Atlantic history ignores Africa on the one hand, and then they think I, I think also that a lot of things that uh, are important to African historians don't have much to do with the Atlantic. Um, so they think that um, you know the the interior developments within Africa. Uh, are, are understudied, and that um, you shouldn't just think that um, the interaction of, of uh, Africa with the Atlantic is where the is where the action is, as it were. Mm-hmm. I think they think the action is often going on in other areas. Mm-hmm. So, so I, you know, I, I, I think uh, we have to be careful that um, you know when we incorporate Africa, we do it properly, and we don't uh, and we don't they don't see it as a as a sort of imperialistic grab on our part. And that we respect uh, what's important in in their field. Um, so, um, Africa clearly clearly is the most understudied part of the Atlantic world. But then again, there may, there may be lots of things going on in Africa that that really don't have much bearing on the Atlantic world. And the African influence, the Atlantic influences are actually, you know, not 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 all that significant to be mm-hmm. frank. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I see. I see what you're saying, and and you know, in a certain way, you do what you can do. Uh, it, it, again, vis-a-vis administrators and the people that fund the lines. I mean, you 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 can only you can only study the history really that you present to them that they are willing to accept. And and if this is a kind of foot in the door, I mean, I can remember a day. I, I can't remember, but I've read about a day in which uh, you know, Russian history simply wasn't studied in the United States at all, and it was kind of uh, snuck in the back door. Uh, by various people, and then when the Cold War happened, obviously we got a lot more support. But and now there's a huge Russian historical community. But for a long time, they were a minority, and they were uh, they felt as if they were uh, treated as a kind of a, um, a neglected sister. So uh, I, I, I think that, that this is all part of that negotiation with administrators and with the public in general about what what we will uh, be funded to study. Let, let's turn to a discussion of... Um, could I... Could I? Oh, please um, do. Absolutely. Uh, Jack, could I ahead. just uh, uh, piggyback a bit on, uh, on Phil's point, um, which I think is not only applicable to Africa, to the history of Africa, but to the other uh, three continents as well, uh, because uh, each one uh, has a historiographic uh, thrust that has shaped it, and uh, uh, there's been a considerable resistance among Latin Americans, for instance, who are mainly not interested in their colonial history, uh, but in their national histories, uh, to uh, uh, join in the uh, celebration of the Atlantic uh, framework, for instance. And the same thing's true with uh, 19th and 20th century historians of uh, Canada and the United States. Uh, and of course, in Western Europe, there's a whole other uh, uh, f- phenomena, uh, a whole other agenda going on that's very internal, mm-hmm. and it uh, doesn't really um, uh, look at the uh, uh, care much about the marine, uh, the maritime, uh, and the uh, the Atlantic uh, orientation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and these these things all require delicate uh, negotiation. And uh, but I don't think. Most most Atlanticists uh, uh, claim that they're um, they're doing all of the history of any of these continents. Mm-hmm. They're only claiming that mm-hmm. in a, it certainly in a, in a specific era uh, that the unities and the uh, and the commonality of processes that were at work are worth study, studying in them, in themselves and on a comparative basis. Mm-hmm. Well, you can. I mean, yeah, I, go ahead, Phil. Yeah, I mean, I I, I agree with Jack. Of course, and um, I mean there are other frameworks. There are imperial frameworks. There, there are continental frameworks. There are hemispheric frameworks, and the, and and the book has essays that um, that explore those dimensions. In addition, I would say that historians of Native America, uh, historians of Native Americans, certainly feel that Atlantic history, um, you know, uh, sometimes neglects uh, their concerns as well. Uh, and similarly, historians of um, the Dutch and the Portuguese often say that you know their real, the real centre of their activity is not in the Atlantic, obviously in this period, but but is in the is in the East. Um, and some people would argue that 
Atlantic history is much more of an Anglo-American phenomenon or a Franco-American phenomenon than Iberian phenomenon than it, than it is um, Portuguese and, and Dutch. Uh, some people would make that claim also. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I was going to say, let's talk a little bit about the concept of uh, the Atlantic world itself. And let me ask you both uh, to tell me uh, when it began and where it goes. <laughs> Jack, why don't you go ahead? Sorry about I, that. I, I fellas, was going to call on Phil. <laughs> yeah, <time>. I bet. <laughs> Sorry, you get to go first. Where does it begin? Uh, well, do you want me to go? Or do you want me well, to go, go ahead. Yeah. I don't Go ahead. Where does it begin? Well, well, I mean, typically most people say with Columbus, but uh, you could certainly question that beginning. Uh, some people might suggest the Vikings, uh, or certainly, you know, uh, the 15th century expansion of Europe into the Atlantic. Um, some people would suggest, you know, um, uh, when the Portuguese first uh, made their inroads into North Africa, or when the Atlantic slave trade first began into Europe in the middle of the 15th century. Um, so, there are, I mean, the beginnings are always fluid and blurred, but um, most people could typically say 1492, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so the, the, the beginnings are, 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 never, are never crystal clear. Um, in terms of, um, our, you know, our book is, is, an, is an exploration of the early modern era, and most people end around about 1800 or eight maybe the Spanish-American independence movements of the early 19th century. Um, but again, um, you know, does the early 19th century mean much in an African context, say, you know, is worth, is worth investigation? Where do, you, where do you take the story? Where do you end the story? It's very, very difficult to, to say. Um, could be 1804 with Haitian independence. Could be 1825 with Spanish-American independence. Could be could be when the slave trade ends in the 1860s. Um, uh, one could one could take any any end point essentially. Um, I mean, the classic, I think, short, elegant description of Atlantic history is that it's the creation, destruction, and recreation of communities because of the movement and uh, you know across and around the Atlantic basin, and uh, you know that will involve uh, people, it will involve commodities. Or involve diseases, cultural practices, uh, values of all kinds. I mean, I think that's a, a, a short sort of sentence description of what Atlantic history is, um, and uh, uh, I mean it allows for obviously a very capacious, um, multi-centered um, exploration of, of all of those, all of those crisscrossing patterns of, uh, of, of the movements of people and diseases and commodities and and values. Okay, Jack, have a go. Uh, I don't. I don't have a lot to add to that, except that I think the the one dimension that Phil didn't uh, mention is the colonial dimension. Uh, and a lot of, uh, I mean, you could make a case that when uh, uh, various colonies become independent, that that's when Atlantic uh, history uh, ends. Um, uh, because of the, I mean, um, imperial and colonial activities were so important in the construction of this uh, community in the uh, in the beginning, uh, but uh, there's a problem with that. First is that colonialism ends in various places at various times, uh, running over more than a century and a half. Uh, and uh, the other problem is that the uh, uh, the Atlantic economy created in the uh, early modern era persists uh, persisted uh, uh, well into the 20th century, and, and in some extent even even uh, even persists today. And the uh, cultural patterns of cultural transmission set up then the set up then. Uh, the flows have uh, reversed in some cases and changed, and, and they're certainly. Uh, but but the, the the kind of reciprocal flows that uh, that were established so early also continue today. So uh, an expansive Atlanticist could uh, argue that. Uh, um, this is a subject that uh, uh, hasn't ended. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, let me let me um, uh, let me try to put uh, 
to you a proposition that, that is a pro, it may seem aggressive uh, and, and it is a little bit stilted, I admit, but I can certainly imagine somebody saying it, making an argument such as this. You know, when the uh, Germans invaded the Soviet Union in uh, June 22nd, 1941, uh, and, and did quite well, we don't, we, we, we don't call that conflict the uh, Russian-German uh, exchange. And we don't talk about a Russian-German world. What we call it is the Nazi invasion of the Soviet Union. And so uh, could it be the case that uh, what we're really talking about here is the Western European invasion of uh, respectively North America, South America, and Africa, phase one? You can just My uh, answer to that is yes. <laughs> my answer to that is yes, too. Darn it. I was <laughs> really hoping for books, no. I was going to help you out here. The, uh, books have been written with that title, <laughs> The Invasion of America. Darn it. I think it's... Um, guys got to help me yeah, out here. <laughs> I think it's perfectly, uh, you know, perfectly reasonable position. I mean, you know, but it's not all about invasion. It's also about encounters and resistance to that invasion. So that would be part of the story as well. And, it, and, it, and it's also about exchange. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, that is, uh, that may or may not uh, uh, be uh, violent. Um, and uh, uh, the, the varieties of, of exchange, as a matter of fact, are in themselves very interesting mm -hmm. to study, but it's precisely because they're so uh, various and numerous. There's so many possibilities. Uh, present and it works so differently from one place to another. Although, and as a general rule, I mean Samuel Johnson in his Idler essays in 1759 um, argued that, uh, uh, well, just just said that uh, all these Europeans, French and English, uh, were invaders and that the Indians should just sit back and and until they had weakened one another in the Seven Years' War and then just push them all into the seas and take their country back because they were the only legitimate uh, owners of the of the soil. Mm -hmm. So this is an old point of view. I mean, it's not uh, it's not the point of view that settlers had. It's not the point of view that empire builders had, yeah. uh, and it's not the the point of view that national histories uh, have constructed to uh, justify uh, uh, their control over large amounts of uh, territory, but, it, but it, it was a point of view among many contemporaries, and not just the victims, but, uh -huh. the, yeah. <laughs> but some of the, uh, some of the uh, members of the associate, associates of the aggressors. I'm sorry, Phil, if you wanted to jump in there? No, 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 I, I don't. Okay, uh, well, I, I was going to say that, um, that it, obviously it's, it's not really a particularly good uh, analogy, uh, the one that I drew between the, the German invasion of uh, the Soviet Union and the, uh, let's call it, movement of Europeans to these other shores. Uh, one of the things that it does bring to mind is I interviewed uh, Kevin Kenny a few weeks ago about his book, Peaceable Kingdom Lost. And I think one, you know, one thing that's important to point out is that uh, the, the reasons that the Europeans gave and the attitudes that they took with them to these new worlds were uh, were varied. They were really quite different. And one of the things he points out about William Penn is that he, he did not exactly have a clear conscience about what was going on. And he did attempt to uh, deal with the uh, native populations as, um, I, I don't know if equals is the right word, but he did attempt to deal with them in a way that was more civil than many of his compatriots did. So it really it really is much more complex than simply uh, the invasion of North America by these European uh, forces. So uh, in that way, it was. A, I will um, upbraid myself for that little bit of parody. Uh, let, let me ask another. Well, the other excuse me, the other problem with your analogy is that it really wasn't an invasion yeah. of the sort that the Germans made in the Soviet Union. It was more a, an occupation. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, Ger the Germans planned to stay. They just didn't get the chance. They, uh, right, right. Yeah. Right. So, but let me let me ask another question that hopefully you'll object to. Uh, <laughs> the, um, you know, I, I was a Russianist, you know, and it and it, it always struck me that there's a certain amount of imperialism behind the very notion of the Atlantic world, and you know, Russianists and Eastern Europeanists in the early modern period in general sort of have a, have a problem because when people think of early modern Europe, they used to think of uh, the French Revolution or the English Revolution, you know, those were, or, or maybe even the Renaissance. You might get that, but nothing east of the Elba. And now things have shifted even further. So we, we can't catch a break. You know, now, now European history happens in Boston. So uh, it's moving further away from the Elba. But what are, how, how are we to, 
you know, those of us who do Eastern Europe, if, if Eastern Europe really even is a concept anymore, I don't know if it is, how, how are we to react to uh, the, the, the seeming imperialism of the notion of Atlantic history? Join. Join, join and tell us. Yeah. And tell us Tell us how, how Eastern Europe uh, is, uh, you know, is part of the Atlantic world too. Or, yeah, you know, although you can see the same processes going on. I mean, yeah. if you, so you see the development of slavery in the West, you see the development of serfdom in the East. And yeah. They're, both, uh, and they're comparable in some ways. Yeah, they are comparable. You see, Germans, you see Germans moving eastward as well as westward. Yeah. And uh, if you're interested in German migration, you would uh, look at both sides of the story. So. Yeah, yeah. I, I, do, I do have a friend that studies the Baltic world. I'm not sure the Baltic is big enough to be a world, but uh, he, he would make the case that it is, and, and it certainly has a coherence. And there's also the Black Sea. There's a Black Sea world, I suppose. It's also a bit smaller. But I do worry a little bit about um, the ways in which uh, certain areas become, and you, of course, know this, and uh, certain areas become marginalized when other areas are given attention in this way. Um, one of the things that, that I was interested in asking you is what, what, um, what are the component parts of the Atlantic world? I know that in... Um, in the book, you have essays about the uh, Spanish Atlantic world and the Portuguese Atlantic world and the British Atlantic world, French and Dutch. Um, uh, how do we divide these areas up and do those divisions uh, change over time? Well, maybe I should answer that because I was responsible for organizing it in that way. But it, it always seemed to me that... Um, uh, the as contemporaries saw these worlds, they were spheres of uh, influence and authority uh, that were very much tied to those uh, those categories of Spanish, Portuguese, British, French, and Dutch. Uh, and so, uh, to an uh, to an important extent, they didn't think about an Atlantic world. They thought about a Portuguese world that spanned the Atlantic and went on into the Pacific, or a British world that did the same, uh, and uh, and 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 so on. So though, so that that's certainly a, a an important element in any attempt to conceptualize this world because uh, that's the way contemporaries looked at it, and I think historians should always be sensitive to uh, to that. Mm -hmm. um, so that 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 that's one of the reasons. Or that's the main reason that we organized the book in that particular way. And, and that's, I mean, the only thing I would add to what Jack said is that while that's clearly true that people operate within those imperial frameworks, nevertheless, um, I mean, there is, uh, there is a fair amount of crossing of imperial borders, uh, and there is something to be said about, um, you know, looking at the, the ways in which empires inter interact and the ways in which people ways in which people cross them. I mean, for example, just, just to take a, a fairly recent book um, that looks at um, the Madeira wine trade, for example. Um, so you can't look at the Madeira wine trade within a particular imperial entity, uh, a Portuguese island that's selling most of its product uh, to, you know, to 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 the, to the British, say. Um, so, so I think a lot. I think a lot of Atlantic history. Uh, a lot of people who do the, who do it would say that it's the interstices between empires, the smuggling that goes on between uh, one from one imperial uh, one empire to another, say, or people who cross those boundaries. Uh, that that's worth exploring as well. So, uh, so I think it's. Um, Yes, you can you can organize it imperially, and it makes a lot of sense to do so. But at the same time, you're interested in how those how those empires interact as well. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that there there is uh, just to go back to go your uh, earlier point, Marshall, about the uh, uh, about other uh, um, uh, modes of uh, interaction, though, there, uh, and, and about how uh, certain areas get marginalized. There has been a strong tendency, I think, in the last few years to look at Atlantic history as what goes on on the Atlantic and to focus on those interstices that Phil is talking about and the boundary crossing and so forth at the expense of of the uh, vast majority of activity which is going on uh, in uh, in in within national uh, boundaries, uh, and uh, that I think is a is a tendency that ought to be resisted. I'm not suggesting that these uh, staying these interstices is not important, but in my view, I mean, one of the most interesting things about uh, or most useful things about the Atlantic framework uh, is that it does encourage 
the comparison of uh, things that are happening within one empire with things happening in another empire or one place in one empire, one place in another empire. And these are the uh, uh, they may or may not have uh, have any uh, an international dimension to them. Mm-hmm. Another I mean, another another. Um Another thing you could say about Atlantic history is some people have claimed is that you know it's often history with a hole in the middle. In other <laughs> words, that, that uh, you know people are, people don't actually don't actually explore what's going on 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 the Atlantic itself, on on the ocean itself. Um, yes, we have studies of uh, you know shipping and trade and uh, but 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 actually seafaring and what that involved. Um, what 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 you know what what. When did the term Atlantic Ocean actually become become important? So we have an, an essay in the volume in the volume that looks at that issue, I think, and, and, and shows that um, it's actually rather interesting that the term you know comes from the bottom up. It comes from perhaps from the sailors rather than from the map makers um, and the and the imperial officials. So, um, yeah, but I think we need more more studies of actually the practicalities of seafaring, and uh, you know we we need a broad sort of social history of Atlantic seafaring in general. I would say um, it's a, it's it, it's it's surprising that Atlantic history um, spends more time on land than it does uh, yeah. than it does at sea. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's right. It's it's, it's an interesting point. Um, one of the things that I was fascinated uh, uh, by in the book is 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 just as you say the the notion of uh, of an Atlantic area or areas in the European consciousness itself. I mean, this is something that historians always have to be mindful of. That is the imposition of modern concepts on uh, some previous epoch. Uh, Maybe one of you could say a little bit about, there's an essay in the book about uh, the way in which Europeans saw the Atlantic and its divisions. Well, I think you're right that um, Atlantic, the, the, the notion of Atlantic, of the Atlantic is an, is an is anachronistic. Um, it, it's a modern imposition um, onto contemporary thinking. Or, I mean, that's that's largely true. Um, on the other hand, um, I mean, you look at you can look at um, you look at contemporary maps um, in the 18th century, and you, you'll be you, you will see uh, over time you'll see the Atlantic increasingly um, increasingly being referenced. So initially. It would be North Sea and Ethiopian Sea and so on and so forth. Um, Brazilian Sea are also various various seas um, that, are, that that you'll see on maps in, in the 16th and 17th centuries. But then the Atlantic does be, become rather more important on on contemporary maps, at least in the 18th century. And yes, Joyce Chaplin, in her essay in this volume, um, notes that. Um, the real explosion in, the, in, in references to the term Atlantic um, is actually in the Seven Years' War period. So as empires are fighting over territory in the Atlantic, so the Atlantic itself becomes a term much more, you know, in much more common parlance. Um, and as she also says, as I, as I just mentioned, um, you know, sailors and maritime uh, and maritime. Um, uh, dwellers in general are, are the ones who who really uh, begin to use the term most most evident. She, men- she mentions William Dampier, for example, as being somebody who uses the term Atlantic precociously, well before um, it, it becomes uh, widely current. But it is widely current by the late 18th century, at any rate. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Jack, anything on that? Uh, no. Okay. I don't have anything much to add to that. Okay. All right. Um, let, let me um, shift to a, another topic then, and that is, um, I'm, I'm, I'm really interested in the fact that there's no, uh, and this may seem ridiculous to you, I don't know, uh, that uh, in the essays that are uh, the Atlantic worlds, there's no, um, as far as I can tell, there's no um, Native American or Native, uh, the, there's no Atlantic world that is not European. Uh, is that is that, uh, 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 that, that why is that? Pretty- yeah. That's not true. Okay, good. Go ahead. To begin with, I mean, we have a section, we have a section on the impact of the Atlantic world. The book is about Atlantic history. Yes. About the impact of uh, uh, the Atlantic world on indigenous, uh, on on the old continents. Yes. Okay, go ahead. And so there is an article in there by Amy Bushnell, who, which uh, does treat uh, uh, the, um, uh, in both uh, uh, North and South America, 
and the impact of the Atlantic world on indigenous Americans. Uh, and that book uh, is a very, or that, that article is a very strongly uh, uh, kind of pro-Native American uh, piece, uh, which uh, points out that as late as the 1880s, a relatively small amount of both continents were dominated by uh, people of European descent and still controlled by, uh, uh, while claimed by nations, still controlled, effectively controlled by indigenous Americans. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that, uh, uh, you know, and, and I think the, the essay on Africa, which Phil did, is, uh, is, is um, also quite sensitive to that, to the, to the same point. Uh, so uh, one of the things we were trying to do in the, in that section uh, is to um, uh, lay out how far the Atlantic world had actually penetrated by when and in what ways. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, uh, it probably, because the focus is on the uh, – and neither of these essays probably uh, spend as much time as they might if they had had more space and so forth in – pointing out the uh, um, many uh, uh, places which managed to retain a great deal of cultural integrity mm -hmm. uh, against the encroachment of this uh, of these ways and yet yet I think both of those essays do that quite uh, quite successfully mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah I guess what I was trying to get at here um, clumsily though it might have been is that uh, it, I guess it's very difficult to discuss um, exactly these the, the disposition of these native peoples um, prior to European contact before because precisely because of the difficulty of the source base and again I, I don't know a lot about them I know about the Russian case in which there are lots of native peoples um, and they were illiterate uh, and so studying their uh, what we might call pre-European or pre-Russian history contact is very difficult um, and I, I guess you face the same thing in the Atlantic world yeah but I, I mean I think you know well, I mean, it's, when when, they're, when they're indigenous people living in America and Africa um, prior to you know roughly the um, the, the 15th century, um, there's no Atlantic world for them to interact with, is there? So, yeah. so it's really beyond the scope of uh, of our volume. I mean, there are plenty of histories of. Native America um, that, that precede 1500 and they're quite effective. Yes, they do have source problems, but uh, certainly not uh, in, you know, in certain parts of the of the Native American world, and the Maya, for example, the Aztecs. The, yeah, sure. Because there's certainly plenty of studies of them prior to 1500. And similarly, African history. There's you know there's obviously a, a very distinguished medieval African uh, historical uh, you know literature, but, mm -hmm. but but at that point, they're not much part of the Atlantic world, sure. I think you could say. Uh, although, you know, certainly um, there's a significant uh, trans-Saharan uh, African trade and there's movement of Africans into, you know, uh, as you know, into the into the East well before they're involved in, in the Atlantic as well. So, mm -hmm. uh, how has, but but, I was going to say, how, how, how has the... Um, notion of Atlantic history as a kind of novelty, and here I'm speaking in historical terms that it's 20 or 30 years, uh, how was it received by uh, people that study these indigenous peoples? Have they felt it was a, did they feel that it was a, 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 a um, an aid to their effort, or did they feel as if um, that this new entity, Atlantic history, was um, somehow uh, damaging of their enterprise? Well, well, for for people who were interested in how uh, European uh, uh, settlement uh, and occupation uh, affected uh, the indigenous world, I think it was it was quite uh, interesting and and uh, uh, and stimulated uh, some a, a lot of work on that subject. But uh, long before that, people were in in the case of the Americas, for instance. I mean, people were interested uh, in uh, in indigenous societies, and uh, there's just an enormous amount of archaeological work that's been done on these societies and continues to be done on these societies. Uh, and uh, uh, before the European uh, conquest or the European invasion or before the penetration even of European trade goods. Uh, and uh, uh, it would be useful to know more about that. But the absence of written documents, I think, in either Africa or in uh, 
in uh, uh, the Americas is not uh, such a liability as uh, I might have thought when we started this program at Hopkins in uh, in the late uh, in the late 1960s. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, do you have anything to add to that? Well, I mean, I just think that um, I mean, I mean, my, my sense of Native American history recently is that I mean, there's been I mean, wonderful study. I just recently read. Uh, um, Hamalainen's book on the Comanche Empire, for example, mm. which is a terrific, uh, a terrific book um, that looks at, uh, you know, the Southwest. Um, it doesn't, you know, it look, it, that that um, that looks at the the intersection of empires in that area and how a Native American group arose in the 18th century to become a powerful entity um, as a result of as a result of uh, you know, it's their adaptability and their flexibility and their ability to uh, to uh, command horses, for example. So, um, uh, you know, there's, 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 I think Native American historians have, in Dan Richter's phrase, they they look at Native Americans, uh, you know, facing east as much as uh, we look at, uh, you know, the, the classic Atlanticist looks at um, the influences coming from the west. And I think there's just a, a really, you know, vibrant. Uh, Symbiosis there, for, you know, people looking at it from different vantage points, both both from the interior um, and um, from the coast. Um, mm-hmm. so and, and and one might say that uh, it's also stimulated uh, um, uh, historians of Indians to uh, who don't uh, who object to their uh, the populations they stayed to be to be seen only as victims. Uh, to explore their own internal history uh, before the uh, they had any interaction with uh, Europeans, and to recognize uh, you know, the, the uh, common processes that are going on uh, well before the Europeans uh, Europeans arrived, and the integrity of those of those histories. So as a as a kind of uh, counter to uh, uh, Afri- uh, to uh, Atlantic history, uh, I think the in, uh, the history of indigenous peoples has been um, has been gro- uh, greatly uh, stimulated, as Phil says, in a kind of symbiotic way. Yeah, if I could just have my own two cents, I uh, having interviewed people like um, Kenny about uh, the uh, the founding and, and history of Pennsylvania. I think I think that you're quite right about that. I mean, one of the wonderful things for me. Uh, about reading a book like Peaceful Kingdom Lost is the degree to which he is able to um, show the Native Americans as sort of full-blooded actors and Mm. not all of a piece. In other words, they were uh, quite different, thought of themselves as different one to the other and different from the Europeans whom Mm. they understood as different from one to the other. And it it makes the uh, presentation um, much more, uh, much richer, I think, than um, than had been the case. My, my knowledge of Native American history, for example, is not deep at all, but I was happy to see that these um, distinctions uh, that we thought of as fine really weren't very fine in the lived history of, of that area, particularly in the, uh, the 17th and 18th century. So, and I think that sense, uh, Atlantic history has been uh, really quite, a, uh, uh, quite an aid to the efforts of people to study um, indigenous peoples within the Atlantic sphere. Well, let me ask another quick question. You address it in the book, and, and I know the answer, but I'd like to hear what you guys have to say, and I'm sure that um, our uh, listeners would too. How is Atlantic history different than imperial history? I mean, when I was in graduate school, there, there really I guess there was Atlantic history. I wasn't aware of it, but we studied empires, and this was all in the framework of empire building and colonization and this kind of thing. Well, uh, Atlantic history incorporates imperial history. Mm-hmm. Is the short answer to that? Yeah, it's more it's more capacious, uh-huh. uh, and it uh, opens up a much wider uh, per, uh, a range of perspective uh, on imperial history. But I myself don't think you can do without imperial history. Mm-hmm. Neither do I. I think they they're complementary uh, rather than you know competitive, uh, really. Um, as we mentioned earlier, I mean, you know, it's, it's the you know we can think of borderland areas, places where empires intersect. We can think of people people crossing uh, imperial boundaries. Um, uh, yeah, I, I think I think you can't just sort of add empires uh, together and assume that then you're doing Atlantic history. You've also 
it, it's not just additive. There's, there's something extra involved by, as, as Jack says, by thinking more capaciously about about the the broader the broader arena in which they all are playing a role. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, you know, it, it isn't self-contained. That's the problem. I mean, the the you know they're they're sending off the uh, the silver to China. I mean it's it's not staying within the Atlantic. So whatever you're studying, you should be aware of how the you know how those influences are, are always extending beyond the arena that you are most concerned with. Mm-hmm. Uh, let me ask another uh, uh, what, what may seem like an aggressive question, but isn't the when we study France, we uh, think we're studying French people, and when we study Russia, we think we're studying Russian people, and we study uh, Britain, we think we're studying. Well, that's a con- that's a controversial question, isn't it? We're studying British people. Uh, are there Atlantic people? Sure, there are some. Yeah, and what would they be exactly? Well, for instance, the Jewish diaspora. Uh, these people have no national roots. Well, they do have some national roots, but they have not a national identification. They go. Uh, here and there, and they set up quite vibrant and uh, uh, essential, or at least uh, they play a major role in the creation of Atlantic economies, for instance. Uh, and they're uh, serious players, even though we're not talking about an enormous uh, population. So that's, and the mariners that Phil talks about mm-hmm. uh, are often uh, also another group which is, uh, which might be thought of as Atlantic people, though probably most of them were not, uh, had a much wider maritime experience than uh, just on the uh, Atlantic, but they would, could fall under that uh, category. Philip, is there an Atlantic identity? Well, I mean, I agree with Jack. I mean, there are obviously no self-identifying Atlantic people, but there are people who are citizens of the Atlantic and whose, you know, whose sense of, um, you know, of national affiliation is often, you know, somewhat weak or permeable, and they move, you know, around within those boundaries, and they, uh, and they, the, the, the Jewish diaspora is a perfect example. Um, um, but I think that there are also people, you know, you could think about people who are completely landlocked, you know. Um, you could think about, uh, the, there, there have been studies recently of, you know, people like John Locke or David Hume who've never crossed the Atlantic, who never saw the Atlantic, but for whom the Atlantic was actually rather important in uh, thinking. So you could even you could even look at it that way, take sing- singular individuals who don't spend any time don't even cross the Atlantic. Don't even maybe see the Atlantic, but for, for whom the Atlantic is has you know changes their perspectives on things and their worldviews. So mm-hmm. um, I think you can think of it in all sorts of respects. Uh, um, actually, um, it's, it's funny you mentioned that people who uh, whose lives were bound up with the Atlantic and I you know really never had any contact with it. I've, it's not just the Atlantic, but I interviewed uh, Peter Mancall a few weeks ago about. Uh, Henry, Henry Hudson, Hudson, yeah, and we talked a lot about, and I'd studied Hackleet myself. As far as I know, Hackleet never made it out to the Atlantic. Maybe he did, I don't know, but his whole life was bound up in people who had crossed it, and, you know, it really it would determine his life, this, this place that he had really never been to, if, I, if, I, if I'm not incorrect. Well, let me ask another question. Hudson, Hudson wanted to get out of the Atlantic, yeah, didn't he? <laughs> he really did. He did and yeah, no, he, he really did. Didn't ever make it, but he did want to get out. The, uh, uh, let me ask another question. Uh, um, so, so if it is the case, as you've said, that um, imperial history is a subset of Atlantic history, is Atlantic history a subset of uh, what is, I think, a, a new and burgeoning field, borderlands history? Hmm. Well, I wouldn't say so myself. No, I, I mean, I think, I think borderlands history is uh, um, an interesting uh, area, uh, and it, uh, but it doesn't. Uh, it's not confined to any particular part of the globe. I mean, you can find these uh, areas of uh, which are uh, contested uh, and uh, um, uh, mutually occupied and, uh, and so on all over in uh, large areas, including now. <laughs> and, and so uh, I, I think that's an, uh, uh, you know, a, a very interesting area of studies, but it's not uh, Atlantic history uh, that would be only a part of Atlantic history, in, in my view. 
not the uh, not the whole of it by any means. It couldn't encompass yeah. it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, yeah, we think of frontier zones, zones of interaction, middle grounds um, yeah. where, where no one no one group can really you know is in control. Um, but they are interesting, but they're. Uh, and as Jack says, you can explore them anywhere. They're not confined to the Atlantic, obviously, although the Atlantic does give rise to many interesting uh, borderland areas um, that, that, you're right, are increasingly being studied. I, I quite agree. It's a very hot area, I think. But, um, so that one, one, one could say that uh, um, uh, the history of borderlands in the Atlantic is a very important part yeah. of Atlantic history. Yeah. But that... Atlantic history itself is not simply a study of borderlands. <laughs> okay, okay. Uh, then what, what is Atlantic history a part of? Is it a part of any superset? Well, global history, I global guess. History. I mean, yeah, world history. Um, yeah, I mean, it clearly is, isn't it? I mean, mm-hmm. or you could, you could think of um, ocean histories. I mean, there are studies now of the Pacific Ocean uh, as an entity, um, Indian Ocean. Um, the Atlantic Ocean maybe should be seen in that respect. All oceans connect, and ocean worlds should be explored in that respect comparatively. Mm-hmm. Could be that could be something of value to do. Is there anybody who's written a history of the Great Lakes region? I, it just occurred to me, living here in the Upper Midwest, I, I suppose there is something to be written there. Though. Well, Richard White wrote the famous book on the Middle Ground on the Great Lakes region. Um, but it doesn't know, cover all of it. Mm-hmm. It doesn't cover all of it, no. Yeah, I, I, I'm just professing my ignorance. I don't know. So let me ask you this, then. What is the future of Atlantic history? The Pacific. No. What is, what, what is the future of Atlantic history? Mm. Well, I think it may have a rather long half-life myself uh, because uh, so many people are engaged in it and there are actual, actually positions now in Atlantic history, yeah. uh, which I find surprising because when we started out at Hopkins, it was never our, our idea to create a field. It was rather to, uh, to uh, promote a perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so this was uh, – but, but nonetheless, it's happened. Uh, and uh, I think uh, all any field is uh, self. Hello. Yes, I somehow I just uh, yeah, I don't, yeah, we, yeah I, I think every field is self-generating in the sense it perpetuates itself mm-hmm. because of mm-hmm. disciplinary and academic <laughs> uh, uh, factors. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a there's an H Atlantic discussion group. There's a wide variety of journals that uh, that uh, now that now focus on Atlantic history. Uh, you know, scholars are giving papers in Atlantic history. Uh, departments, as Jack says, are giving offering employment in it. You know, um, there are book series that seem to multiply as we as we speak uh, that, that are now exploring Atlantic history. I think there's no question that this uh, that uh, this this uh, perspective is burgeoning. Um, there, are t- there have been a couple of textbooks recently written in the area. Um, as I say, uh, uni- you know, universities are offering uh, graduate degrees and undergraduate degrees in the subject. So, it's um, it, it, it's 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 burgeoning. It's mm-hmm. it's it's not it's not it's not peaked. I don't think. Mm-hmm. I think it's um, it's 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 growing. Yeah. Um, now, I mean, but you know, certainly there's certainly a certain amount of uh, angst uh, though about its direction. I think, and you know, and its its constraints and its limits and the degree to which it creates its own myopia. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, I yeah, and that, we we tried to I deal think, with that too. Yeah, we did. Yeah, I think in that's the, fair. Uh, I mean, I think you should always be self-critical about you know in being involved in this area. I mean, it, it, it doesn't, as we've said, it's uh, you know it's an it's an anachronistic in some ways, and uh, people didn't always. Uh, have a sense, you know, there are lots of things going on in this general area that didn't have much to do with one another, so um, we should be aware of that as well. Yeah. So I predict, just to throw in again my, my two cents, I guess this is my third sense, 
So uh, I predict uh, balkanization and parcelization, uh, as in everything academic, <laughs> because that's what academics do best. They're splitters, not lumpers. You know, like could it's, well be. There'll be a journal of South Atlantic studies within the decade. I, I almost guarantee well, you. Well, it's already happening, I think. Oh, a lot really? of people are arguing that there was no one Atlantic. There were at least two or three Atlantics. Well, more power to them. That's what I say. More power to them. Yeah. Balkanization. Well, the, there is a, uh, a sense, just to go back slightly, in which uh, Atlantic history is uh, an important part of a global history, and I use global in terms of world history because uh, I've never quite understood what world history was before uh, some degree of globalization took place. Right. Um, and so uh, I... Yeah, I, I do think that uh, that if uh, historians can move to up a level to global uh, to a global perspective, that that uh, uh, would be quite useful in putting things in perspective in the Atlantic, or the Indian Oceans, or the Pacific Oceans, or on continents even. Uh, and uh, that's a uh, uh, that's that's one direction things may take. The problem with that is that uh, historians have a limited capacity for expertise, mm -hmm. um, and that's what leads to the balkanization. No, that's exactly right. No, I, I, from your lips to God's ears, I think that's a terrific idea, and I hope things that go in that direction. I could talk a little bit about what uh, world history might mean before um, the. Uh, before the, the, the creation of a kind of unified uh, world system or whatever one's called it. Well, it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be unified. <laughs> yeah, right. I won't, I, won't, I won't talk about it. Uh, I do have some thoughts about that. But let me ask you, I'm going to put you on the spot here, and you can refuse, politely refuse to answer this question. But I think, um, and I mean that seriously, I think our uh, <laughs> readers would be uh, interested to know uh, what your uh, very brief, maybe briefest possible, bibliography of um, Atlantic history might be. Could you recommend a couple of books that, you know, I always, whenever anybody asks me this, I always choose uh, colleagues of mine that are dead. That's my, but, but your field is too young for that, I think. But so just a couple of books that our listeners might, you know, be interested in reading. You I can recommend, I can recommend one, uh -huh. uh, which is John Elliott's, uh, I can't remember the title of his book, but Empires of the Atlantic. Empires, Empires of the Atlantic. Atlantic um, uh, that book, it seems to me, is far and away the best kind of the uh, uh, best example of uh, that I can think of of this uh, kind of, in, uh, of of achievement. But once you get beyond his book, it seems to me there are a lot of uh, monographic studies uh, which are uh, uh, useful. But it's very difficult to say that one is. Uh, would be more interesting for somebody to read uh, than another. And even Eliot's book you know, is quite limited, as broad as it is. It compares British and Spanish things, but doesn't deal with uh, with all the Spanish places or all the British places, and not at all with the Dutch, French, Portuguese, indigenous peoples are the our Afri African peoples who are involved in the in the Atlantic world. Philip, you want to put your head in the noose? Well, the only other, the, a, a different kind of book, I guess, um, from from John Eliot's book, which I, I agree with Jack. It's terrific uh, comparative study. Um, I suppose the other, the other, and it's, this is a very different kettle of fish. Um, is uh, you know, is Bernard Bailing's uh, small small book, Atlantic History, uh, and he offers two essays there. So it's it's, a, it's more of an essay. Um, kind of book, um, two short essays, one looking at how Atlantic history actually developed, offering a, a sense of how how, the, how this um, concept evolved, and then a second essay offering his notion of, um, of how it evolved chronologically, you know, trying to offer some stages of development um, in the second essay. So if you wanted a short little introduction to Atlantic history, that's his as good as any, I think, and um, and then follow it up with the uh, you know with the the big mind-bending um, comparative study of Britain, British and Spanish Americas by John Eliot.
Mm-hmm. Well, let me make my own um, recommendation since I am the host of the show. I would recommend people um, read uh, Jack Green and Philip Morgan, Ed, uh, Atlantic History, A Critical Reappraisal. And, and there you will, that will be a, uh, you, you will be right up to speed. You, no question. You'll be on the cutting edge of Atlantic History if you read this book just out from Oxford University Press. Well, um, fellas, let me close the show as we normally do by asking you both to talk just a little bit about what you're working on now. Um, Jack, why don't you go first? Uh, well, I'm trying to do a book now in uh, metropolitan British history for the first time in my uh, life, which focuses on the uh, on 18th century ideas about empire. What did the British think their empire was, and what languages did they use to describe it, and how did those languages interact to uh, uh, to produce uh, uh, a sense of empire that. Uh, uh, to, from which uh, metropolitan Britons wanted to distance themselves. Mm-hmm. Boy, I could have used you yesterday during my uh, lecture. On uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was lost. These, I can't wait for that book to come out, Philip. Um, well, for my sins, I'm trying to write a general history of the Caribbean. Um, so uh, a small, a small, to- a small topic, yeah. um, and, uh, and put it in a broad Atlantic context. Right. And uh, so I'm taking the story from from uh, the Native Americans who lived in the Caribbean region before the Europeans arrived and uh, taking the story through um, the early 19th century. Well, that's terrific. Um, that's, that's absolutely terrific. I, I look forward to um, seeing both of these books, and as I always say to people, and I mean it, when they are done, please jet me an email, and I'll have you on the show <laughs> to talk about both of them. All right? Very good. All right. Well, gentlemen, thank you very much much for being on the show. We've been talking to Jack Green and Philip Morgan about Atlantic history, a critical reappraisal that's just come out from Oxford University Press, and it was uh, co-sponsored by the National History Center. Um, Thank you very much for being on the show, fellas. Thank you. Okay, take care. Thank you so much, Marshall. Goodbye. You've been listening to an interview with Jack Green and Philip Morgan about their new book, Atlantic History, A Critical Reappraisal. It's just come out from Oxford University Press in conjunction with the National History Center. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week. Thank you.